Welcome to the But He Spit in My Coffee podcast, where you can listen to my audiobook about adopting a child with reactive attachment disorder. I'm Carrie Williams, the author, and Cindy Pillar is our reader. If you haven't been with us from the beginning, I recommend going back to start with episode one. Now let's pick up where we left off. Three. Delano does most of the cooking in our household, and tonight he's made white rice and Jamaican bully beef. It's a combination of corned beef, thyme, peppers, and onions that reminds me a little too much of canned dog food. The kids love it, but I'm eating a sandwich. What do you have for homework? I asked Sam. He plucks a morsel of bully beef off the green vinyl tablecloth and pops it in his mouth. Mmm, spelling sentences. Devon shovels bully beef into his mouth as fast as he can and asks for more. Glad Sam won't need my help. I mentally organize my evening to take the little kids for a walk around the neighborhood after dinner. The weather is nice, and it would help them to get their energy out. I've been all smiles, accepting congratulations on our pending adoption. But in truth... Settling into our new routine these past weeks has been exhausting. How did I ever imagine that going from one toddler to three literally overnight would be easy? Teeth brushing, shoe tying, snacks, potty breaks, boo-boos, baths, three times everything. Of course, it's also three times the cuddles at bedtime, three times the hugs and kisses, and three times the sweet sound of being called mommy. Slow down, mon, Delano says, scooping another serving of food onto Devin's plate. Without warning, unchewed corned beef spews out of Devin's mouth, down his shirt and across the table. Not again, Sam shoves away from the table, hand over his mouth. Unfazed, Kayla continues eating and watches the scene unfold like it's dinner theater. Me keep telling you, you too craving, mon. Delano huffs. I place a hand on Delano's arm. I try to squelch a gag, but my throat involuntarily clenches with the effort. I whisper, Stop. You'll hurt his feelings. He didn't mean to. Delano wipes Devin's face and pulls his shirt over his head and off. To him, this is just Devin being greedy. Kayla has issues with food, too. Once I found her sitting crisscross applesauce on the pantry floor with her fingers in the peanut butter jar. And in the evenings, she lounges in her booster seat, snacking and keeping Delano company while he washes dishes. He affectionately calls her his little foodie. It's like a cherub's arrow straight to his heart because he loves to feed people. Unfortunately, Devin's gorging is much less endearing than Kayla's grazing because it sometimes ends in vomiting. Delano cleans up the kitchen while I take Devin to the bathroom. I fill the tub with warm water and two capfuls of bubble bath. Devin's easy smile returns as he scoops bubbles on top of his head and slides beneath the water, holding his breath. He comes out smelling fresh and clean, as good as new. The kids play calmly until bedtime. I tuck Devin and Kayla in for the night. Their bedroom has two twin beds across from one another with a large window over Devin's bed and a dresser against the back wall. I draw the blackout curtains tightly across the window. 
The nightlight sends stars cascading across the ceiling. Let's do goodnight, moon, I say. Goodnight, poster, Devin says. Goodnight, toy box, I say. We pause to give Kayla a turn, but she doesn't say anything. I say, goodnight, dollhouse. Goodnight, dresser, Devin says. Goodnight, Kayla, I say. Lying still in the darkness, Kayla doesn't respond. I kiss them both before leaving the bedroom. It's Devin who starts the wailing for tonight, and then Kayla echoes it. Back and forth they go. Devin is hollering a sort of mewing sound, and Kayla is calling, Mommy! Mommy! It's as if they think that I've left them, but I'm standing right outside of their bedroom door. They can see me. Devin and Kayla have fussed at bedtime since they moved in, which is totally understandable given the circumstances. But recently, it's escalated into this hollering and screaming. Delano uses the TV, as only a father can, to tune them out. He glibly promises they'll be famous singers when they grow up, because screaming exercises their vocal cords. It's a Jamaican old wives' tale, but not knowing how to comfort them is beyond distressing, and I'm not heartened by the supposed silver lining. Standing helplessly at their bedroom door, it's all that I can do to not go back in. My resolve almost melts, especially listening to Devon. Kayla sounds just plain mad, but Devin wails more like a pitiful, broken animal. I determined to wait them out. They've got to learn that screaming and yelling isn't the way to get what they want. But instead of calming down after a few minutes, as I expect them to, they feed off each other, only getting louder and louder. Then I hear a banging on the front door. It's our neighbor, no doubt looking to score some cheap points in the ongoing feud over his poorly behaved Rottweilers. I'm gonna report y'all for beating those kids, he spits out as Delano comes up behind me. Smoke from our neighbor's cigarette wafts through the door like an ill-mannered trespasser. Yeah, we hear him screaming all the time. I know what you people are doing. You damn people are sick. Without a word, Delano swings the door shut in his face. Unease nips at my heels as I walk back toward Devon and Kayla's bedroom. As distasteful as our neighbor is, I can't fault him. I've never heard kids scream quite like Devon and Kayla do, or for as long. What if he does call the police? To be cautious, I leave a voicemail for our caseworker, Lakita. Into the phone I say, They're fussing, and, well, my neighbor is threatening to call the police. Devin and Kayla's voices punctuate the background of my message like exclamation marks. I guess he thinks we must be abusing them. The moment the words are out, I want to call them back, but I can't. I quickly end the message, not wanting to cause undue alarm. Hush now, I say as I kiss Kayla's forehead and she quiets. Devin hugs his purple Barney, loved threadbare, and I tuck the comforter in around them both. Hush now and go to sleep, I tell him. His whimpers tug at my heartstrings as I settle on the floor next to his bed. It's okay, I'm here. I pat his back and knead my neck. Letting them scream it out isn't an option. I'm going to have to find another strategy.
During our bi-weekly home visit, Lakita asks how Devin and Kayla are doing at Little Rascals. I make a face, and she says apologetically, I know, I know. At least it's close by. That place is really run down. We're sitting at my dining room table, drinking iced tea. Kayla is upset at first when I drop her off, but then she's fine. They keep sending home notes about Devin. They're having problems with him because he doesn't stay on his mat during nap time. Maybe he's not the kind of kid who needs a nap? I nod my agreement. I'm going to see if they'll let me send his Barney in with him. Or maybe they'll let him have a book during nap time. That's a good idea. I'll contact the daycare and see what else I can find out. Lakita jots down a few notes on her pad. How are the kids getting along at home? They're doing great, I gush, going on about how nicely the kids play together, how we read every night at bedtime, and my plans to take them to the Miami Zoo this weekend. Tell me about what happened the other night with your neighbor, she says. He has something personal against us. I wave a hand dismissively. And tell her about Devin and Kayla's you-have-to-hear-it-to-believe-it screaming. Lakita leans back in her chair and asks if Devin and Kayla are having any other behavioral problems at home. I describe how Kayla grazes and Devin gorges, how I've caught Devin playing with his poop, and how he wets his bed. She nods understandingly. I know it seems disturbing, but what you're describing is all pretty typical for kids who've been severely neglected. I shift uncomfortably in my seat. They were... neglected? This is the first time I'm hearing anything like that. I was told they were never abused. Well, they have been in foster care, Lakita interrupts with just a pinch of condescension, but it's enough to chasten me. Don't worry. These types of behaviors go away once kids feel secure in their forever families. I nod. Of course she's right. Lakita stows her notepad in her bag and stands. So many people are looking to adopt kids like them, young and not having a long history in the system. You're really lucky to get them. We walk toward the door. In the foyer, she turns and touches my arm. You're doing great. After the adoption is finalized, they'll feel safe and won't need to act out anymore. You'll see. I close the door behind Lakita and rest my forehead on the cool metal. I listen to the clinking of toys and muffled voices from the living room as I turn her words over in my mind. Severely neglected? I try to push away the foreboding, but my heart is raw from our failed adoption of Eli. Uncertainty creeps up my body and settles over me like a sticky goo. I'd first come to know about Eli when I saw him profiled on a local TV news segment called Forever Families. He was a wiry boy, close in age to Sam. He liked football and wanted a family with other kids in a pool. When I called for more information, the adoption worker explained that Eli had been in foster care since he was three. His birth mom neglected him, and an uncle had sexually abused him. He had five brothers and sisters, but it was such a large sibling group they weren't being placed for adoption together. 
The whole process took only a few short weeks, and then Eli was put in our home as a pre-adoption placement. I was all in. Eli was, too. Right from the start, he called us mom and dad. Sam and Eli became fast friends, sharing a bedroom and walking to school together each morning and afternoon. They played football in the backyard and took turns riding Sam's bike around the neighborhood. Then, like a pulled thread, the adoption unraveled. After school one afternoon, Sam burst through the door. Mom! Mom! he yelled, rushing through the house to find me. This woman! He leaned on his knees, panting. This woman! She's coming! Eli did something bad! Real bad! Alarmed, I put Amias on my hip and hurried through the house. A scowling woman I'd never seen before was at my front door. Is that your son? She asked, jabbing a finger at Eli, who was dragging his book bag on the ground behind him as he came slowly up the sidewalk. Yes, he is. What happened? Your son flashed his privates at my boys. I'm... I'm so sorry, I stammered, sucking in a shocked breath. He's never done anything like that before. I wouldn't be so sure of that, she said. Turning towards Eli, she added loudly, Next time, I'm calling the cops. As she stalked away, Eli stumbled off the sidewalk into the lawn to give her a wide berth. Eli admitted to exposing himself, but said he didn't know why he did it. When I told the caseworker about the incident, I was shocked to learn Eli wasn't only a victim of sexual abuse, but he'd also gone on to molest his younger siblings. I realized then that this must be the real reason why they couldn't be adopted together. Delano and I were devastated. We faced an unthinkable choice. How could we adopt a child who would put our two other kids at risk? But how could we send him back? We grappled with the dilemma, trying to find a way to make it work, trying to find a way to keep everyone safe. I worked my way up the chain of command at DCF and even sent letters to the state inspector general and governor. What solutions are there for kids who desperately need a family but can't safely live in one? They had no answers. And so we had no choice. We had to send him back. Demoralized, I'd given up my dreams to adopt. Until now. I take a steadying breath, drawing optimism deep into my chest. Devin and Kayla may have been neglected, but that's nothing the love of a forever family can't heal. I just need to know more about their backgrounds, and I'm pretty sure I know where to find some answers. When Kayla and Devin first came to live with us, each had a small bag of personal belongings and what are colloquially called blue books. Florida's foster kids all have them. Aqua-colored accordion folders with pockets and two-pronged fasteners to secure medical records and court documents. As children move through the system, the books are passed from caregiver to caregiver. Devin and Kayla's blue books have been on my desk since they moved in, 
but I've only given them a cursory glance. When Tina said that they were never abused and practically perfect, I'd believed her. On Saturday morning, while everyone is asleep, I carry the blue books to the kitchen table. Despite the early hour, the bright sun cascades through the windows, promising another warm Florida day. Since Devin is the oldest, I pick up the first of his two thick books. Clipped inside the front cover, I find a grainy black-and-white computer printout photo of Devin. His grin is so wide and his eyes so happy that I smile back. The picture isn't dated, but he's probably about two years old. Curious, I flip open Kayla's single, much thinner blue book. She looks to be about 18 months old, with impossibly round eyes. She has the same startled, dazed look that she had the first time we met her in that shabby DCF visiting room. The contrast between Kayla's picture and Devon's is disconcerting. Going back to Devon's blue book, I'm surprised to find extensive details about their birth mother, Sarah. I scan through the early case summaries and learn that Sarah was physically abused as a preteen and was neglected by her parents. Eventually, they lost custody when Sarah was 16. She became a chronic runaway, bouncing around the system for the next two years four group homes and nine foster homes, and dropped out of high school. At 17, Sarah became pregnant with Devon. DCF placed her with Ms. Price, a registered nurse and seasoned foster parent with children and grandchildren of her own. Amias toddles into the kitchen, rubbing his eyes. He crawls up onto my lap, and I cuddle him while I continue to read. Devon was a Valentine's Day baby, born at the same premier labor and delivery hospital where Amias was born. Sadly, I imagine Sarah, an unwed teenage mother, herself a foster child, may not have had quite the same premier experience I did. After the birth, she and Devon both went back to live with Ms. Price. Shortly after Sarah's 18th birthday, Ms. Price came home from work to find them both gone. Sarah had aged out of foster care, and had every legal right to leave and take her son with her. She had been the foster child, not Devon. Ms. Price was worried about Devon and requested a well check. I read the resulting report from the sheriff's office. 2002, case 13092. Devon was found to be in good condition, alert with no marks or bruises, Sarah reported she left her foster home because she wanted to be on her own. She resides in an efficiency apartment. She reported she was working and able to take care of Devon. A referral was made for daycare. No other services were offered. The risk was found to be low. The case was closed with no indicators. Unexpectedly, I find myself rooting for Sarah. She appears to be pulling her life together for herself and Devon. I go to the next case summary, but with only the year listed, I'm not sure how much time has passed. Let's see. Devin could be as young as three months or as old as ten months. 2002, case 141902. Devin and his mother have been living at a motel. Today, the mother left Devin alone while she went out. 
Another resident heard the baby crying. Devin's diaper was clean and dry when he was found. The mother returned within 30 minutes and stated she had been in the parking lot talking to a friend. There are no clothes or formula for Devin. The mother of Devin has been arrested for child neglect. With no one to bail her out, Sarah was in jail for a month before all charges were dropped. By that time, Devin was in foster care and back living with Ms. Price. I marvel at that bit of unlikely fortune. The next documents are medical reports and notes from home visits that the caseworker made with Ms. Price. I'm happy to read that Devin was healthy, happy, and doing really well. Still, the story isn't quite adding up for me. Sarah left Devin alone for only 30 minutes. It's not unheard of for parents to leave kids unattended in a hotel room to run to the lobby, to grab something out of their car, or to switch a load of laundry. And they don't lose their children forever. Not for only that. I'm finished skimming the documents in the second book when Devin and Kayla wander into the kitchen. Stacking the books on my desk, I promise myself that I'll return to them soon. As butter sizzles in a skillet... I use an upside-down cup to press holes out of slices of bread. I place two pieces of the bread in the pan and crack eggs inside of the holes. It's a special breakfast I remember my dad making when I was a kid. The story about Devin in the hotel room fidgets in my mind as I slide the toasty egg-in-a-hole slices onto plates and put them on the table for Devin and Kayla. I return to the stove to make more for Amias and Sam. Then, I remember. A few months ago, I profiled several foster families for an article in a local newspaper that I write freelance for. Using my computer, which sits on a desk in the corner of the kitchen, I pull up the online edition of the newspaper. Sure enough, there's the story of Phyllis Price, undoubtedly the Ms. Price, of the Blue Books. Going back to the stove, I think back to my interview with Phyllis. She was Jamaican, with the soft accent of someone who, like Delano, has been in the States for years. For confidentiality reasons, I didn't get to meet Devin or know his real name. In the article, I'd given him a pseudonym. Phyllis had told me about how she'd been volunteering at the shelter the night police brought Devin in. When she told me how Sarah had abandoned him in a hotel room, I'd imagined him dehydrated and filthy after being left alone for days. I'm not sure why she didn't correct my assumption, but she must have known it was only 30 minutes and that he was physically fine. When Phyllis realized who this shelter baby was, she volunteered to foster him. By the time I was interviewing her, Phyllis had already had Devin for two years and wanted to adopt him. However, DCF had a rule that siblings must be adopted together, and Phyllis couldn't afford to adopt both Devin and Kayla. This can't be a coincidence. We were approached, out of the blue, to consider adopting. Then Devin ends up being the same little kid who I wrote an article about. He's even been living in a Jamaican home. Surely this adoption is meant to be. A bit overwhelmed by emotions, 
I turn away from the stove. I cross the kitchen to where the kids sit, eating breakfast, and place a loud, smooching kiss on Devin's cheek. He startles away. Disconcerted, I press my lips to Kayla's forehead, and she loops her arms around my neck. Four. As promised, Lakita contacts Little Rascals. They tell her that Devin has been throwing tantrums, hitting other kids with toys and urinating on the bathroom walls. He won't lay down during nap time. He wanders around trying to play with the other children, and when they are asleep or ignore him, his feelings get hurt, and he sometimes kicks or hits them. Lakita schedules an appointment to have Devin evaluated for possible ADHD. It's an overreaction. He's adjusting, and the daycare needs to be more patient with him. But I do as I'm asked, and take Devin to the appointment. From my many years as a foster parent, I know how important it is not to fight the system and cooperate with the caseworker. Devin swings his thick legs and flips through a picture book, and I notice his green and white Velcro sneakers are on the wrong feet. How odd. I put his sneakers on him myself this morning. I reach over and change them to the correct feet. Do you want me to read that story to you? I ask. He shakes his head. As we're escorted back to an exam room, I hold Devin's hand and murmur, Don't worry. We're just going to talk. Nothing will hurt. After shaking hands with a young, fresh-faced doctor, I sit down and Devin sits next to me. Hello there. You must be Devin, the doctor says. Devin nods, and one corner of his mouth flickers. Then he goes wild. He twirls in place, flops like a fish on the floor, tries to climb the wall, literally. Knowing the doctor wants to evaluate Devin's behavior, I don't attempt to corral him. After a couple moments of trying to coax Devin into talking to him, the doctor pulls out his prescription pad and says matter-of-factly, he obviously has ADHD. As we step outside after the appointment and walk toward the parking lot, I stuff the prescription in my purse and take Devin's hand. He snatches it back away. I take his hand again, more firmly this time. Why were you acting so wild in there? I'm genuinely curious. Devin shrugs. Over the weekend, I googled the medication on the prescription slip. It is a stimulant, and I really think Devin is too young for it. Besides, I've never seen him act like that before. Naughty, yes, but he's not hyperactive. I close the browser window, ball up the prescription, and toss it into the trash. What Devin needs is stability, consistency, and love. I'm sure of it. On impulse, I reopen the browser. This time, I search for information on why a child would play with feces. I click the first result. Possible reasons jump off the page. Surviving satanic ritual abuse or being a psychopath. I hurriedly click on the back button. I scan through other sites until I find one that says playing with feces isn't uncommon for foster kids. Relief floods me. Completely normal. It's completely normal. 
That night, Amias and Kayla snuggle close on one side of me in my king-sized bed. Devin is on the other side of me, craning his neck to see the pictures on Stinky Face, the board book I'm holding. The kids giggle at the ape boy who has a shock of red hair and is wearing orange-striped pajamas. I read, Mama, what if I were a big scary ape? Would you still love me then? I flip to the next page where the illustration shows what Mama would do if her son was a big scary ape. She would make him a cake decorated with bananas. I read, Mama says, I love you, my big scary ape. We read The Rainbow Fish next. It's a shiny hardcover edition that Kayla brought with her when she came to live with us. The one beautiful thing she had. She especially loves the shimmery foil scales and traces her fingers over them on each page. When we finish reading, I take Devin and Kayla to their bedroom. I rub my cheek to Kayla's cheek. Look at that! Another freckle jumped off my face onto yours. She giggles and hugs me around the neck. Crossing the bedroom, I tuck Devin and his Barney in under the covers and kiss both of them on their foreheads. Sinking to the floor with my back against the wall like I do most nights now, I settle in to wait for them to fall asleep. When I emerge a while later, the house is quiet, other than the murmur of the cricket game that Delano was watching in the living room. I find Sam in his bedroom, hunched over his desk. I peer over his shoulder. Homework? Sam shakes his head. He's drawn Life with My Mother, an almost true story, in bubble letters, and is coloring them with markers. Sam has big plans to be a famous author. He's going to write about the first time he watched me, his new white stepmom, peel sunburned skin from my shoulders. He was horrified. He has other chapters planned about how I'm like a human lie detector, no matter how clever he is, and how I make him write sentences as a consequence for misbehavior. Having been raised in the Jamaican culture of corporal punishment, he finds this to be shocking. He's a funny kid with a big personality. I leave him to it. Carrying Kayla's single slim blue book into my bedroom, I turn on the bedside lamp. Amias is asleep and I curl into bed beside him and begin to read. 2003, case 3097731. Sarah gave birth to a baby girl. She agreed to voluntary protective supervision. She designated Rachel Selleck to be the non-relative placement for her daughter. I furrow my brow. Didn't Tina tell me Kayla was in a good foster home since birth? I'm familiar with non-relative placements from my foster parenting training. It's when a parent chooses a friend to take their child instead of having them go into foster care. It can be risky because there's almost no monitoring by the state. How well did Rachel take care of Kayla? Next, I find a report from Kayla's guardian ad litem, Gal. Gals are volunteers who advocate for children within the court system. She describes Rachel's house as unkempt and says that Kayla had no bedding. The next document is a court order. Change of placement and status. A recent background check on Rachel Selleck's friend, Ms. Lansky, revealed a past charge for child cruelty. Ms. Selleck has been advised to not leave Michaela in care of this friend. 
Today, the child advocate learned the child was being left with Ms. Lansky and immediately removed the child from her care. I wince. No wonder Kayla's such a tough cookie. It's not documented anywhere here. But I'm pretty sure I've already seen the most indelible record from Kayla's life before she came to live with us. It's a faded brown scar on the inside of her right knee, shaped like the tip of a clothes iron. I can count the small, round steam holes. I don't know how it happened, but it sure doesn't look like it could have been an accident. A judge signed the order to move Kayla into foster care at the end of April, a few days before she turned two. Where was she living during the months between when she left Rachel's house in April and when we first met her in November? I had no idea about this gap. I flipped through the last few pages, mostly medical forms, but don't find the answer. To make room for the blue book, I scoot the books on my nightstand over. There's my Bible and the book I'm currently reading, I'm Chocolate, You're Vanilla, raising healthy black and biracial children in a race-conscious world. The others are suspense novels. It's my favorite genre, but I always read the last chapter first to make sure that there's a happy ending. Under the covers and snuggling Amias to me in the darkness, I'm haunted by what I now know about Devin and Kayla's early childhood. It's especially painful to imagine because of how Amias is so attached to me and I to him. When Amias was born, the doctor detected an irregular heartbeat during the labor, and Amias was sent to the NICU. I'd immediately climbed out of the hospital bed, pulled my gown around me, and headed down the hall with them. As we walked past the nursing station, I heard someone say incredulously, Isn't that the woman who just gave birth? One of them called, Ma'am, you shouldn't be walking around but I was not going to be separated from my baby, not for a minute. The doctor cleared and released Amias from the NICU the next day. When we returned home, I fell into the rhythm of attachment parenting, at the time not knowing it was a thing, carrying him in a sling, foregoing a stroller, breastfeeding on demand and co-sleeping. Delano and I were always at Amias's beck and call, even when his call was nothing more than a whimper. I can't help but compare that with how Devin and Kayla were cared for, or not cared for, as infants. When they cried, did anyone come? How did Devin feel when Sarah suddenly disappeared from his life? How does a baby even process that? Does Kayla cling to my arm at Little Rascals because she's literally afraid I won't come back for her? It's on these deeply disturbing thoughts that an uneasy sleep finally comes. The next morning, I'm feeling optimistic again by hearkening back to my foster parent training. Children are resilient. Even if they've gone through terrible abuse and neglect, they can thrive and heal with the love and permanency of a forever family. Children act out because they are feeling unsafe. This is why consistent parenting is so important. That's why they do much better after they are adopted. If Devin thinks of anyone as mom, it's Phyllis. And that's one connection I can keep intact for him. 
She can be one less person in his life who has up and disappeared. I invite Phyllis over for dinner, and Devin is so excited that he brushes his teeth and changes his clothes all by himself. He presses his forehead and fingers against the bay window, watching for his granny. That's what Phyllis has suggested he call her going forward. Amias and Kayla pay him no mind since they don't know Phyllis. They are busy playing with building blocks. She here! My granny is here! Devin dashes for the door when she pulls into the driveway. Phyllis is short and solid with cropped hair, round glasses, and high cheekbones. You being good in school? Is the first thing she asks. Bobbing his head, Devin looks at his feet, thin lips quivering as he fights to suppress a shy smile. Suddenly, he takes off running into his bedroom. He returns panting and holding up a coloring page. It's a fat caterpillar on a tree branch. In the sky above floats its future self, a butterfly with hearts adorning its wings. Devin has colored it with purple, pink, and green. Very nice. Thank you. Phyllis takes the paper, folds it in half, then half again, and slips it into her pocketbook. Delano comes out of the kitchen and hands Phyllis a tall glass of fruit punch clinking with ice. I'm fixing brown stew chicken and rice and peas, he tells her. They exchange words in patois. In more formal settings, Delano goes out of his way to speak in very dignified, proper English. He only speaks patois with other Jamaicans like Phyllis, but bits and pieces carry over into all of his conversations because it's a dialect made up of non-standard English grammar and British vocabulary. I'll never forget the time he was lecturing Sam. You must always carry a rubber with you. Do you hear me? Never you go to school without a rubber. He meant a pencil eraser, and I was quick to intervene, telling Sam to call it an eraser, not a rubber. Phyllis clucks her approval of dinner, and Delano disappears back into the kitchen. The hearty scent fills the air as Phyllis and I sit on the sofa. Devin stands with his small fingers on Phyllis's leg. He's telling her about daycare. At least I think he is. His speech is more unintelligible than usual, and I'm struggling to understand him. Phyllis pats his back and says, Go play. He looks at us as though unsure what to do. We'll watch you, I reassure him. Devin reluctantly heads over to where Amias and Kayla are playing. He casts furtive glances over his shoulder to make sure we're watching. We are. Him looking good, Phyllis says. He's so cute and sweet, and he's a good helper, too. When I tell her about Devin's morning sneezing, she snorts. Him still doing that? She doesn't seem surprised about the screaming at bedtime or the potty issues, either. I'm confused. There's nothing about these behaviors happening at Phyllis's home in the Blue Books. That's why I'd assumed they'd only started after Devin moved in with us. Why didn't she tell the caseworker? I can't think of a polite way to ask, so I don't. Instead, I shift the conversation to something else. Why did Sarah leave? I ask in a hushed voice so that the kids won't overhear. Phyllis gives a half shrug. 
I came home from work, and they were gone. No note. Nothing. We sit quietly for a few minutes, watching the kids play. Amaya sits on the floor, holding the base of a tall, thin tower to keep it steady. The higher up it goes, the more it sways. Still, Kayla, who is standing, adds blocks to the top. Devin runs a toy car in loops on the floor in front of where he sits. I ask Phyllis if she has any baby pictures of Devin that I could make copies of. Phyllis shakes her head. Sarah took everything when she left. She didn't want me to have nothing. I glance at Amias's yellow baby book, which is sitting on the nearby bookshelf. It has pictures of him laying on my chest mere minutes after he was born. I know his first word and when he said it. I have the exact dates when he rolled over, crawled, and took his first step. Even for Sam, I have a small baby book with a handful of pictures and a bit of hair his mother saved. Someday, Devin and Kayla are going to ask for their baby books and mementos. And all I'll have to give them are those scrappy printouts in their blue books. No. I shake my mind free of the thought. I refuse to accept that. I'm going to take so many pictures that I'll need entire bookshelves to store all the photo albums of happy family memories we're going to create. This has been But He Spit in My Coffee. You can find additional information in the show notes, including how to connect with me. 